This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. Well, how can parents help children to develop self-control, regarded as a key indicator of adult well-being? New Zealand's largest longitudinal study of child development, the Growing Up in New Zealand study, has recently completed some research on the subject and found there are some key characteristics which encourage this important skill. With me to discuss them is psychologist Saab Johal. Welcome back, Saab. Lovely to see you. Lovely to be back. Let's talk about why self-control is so important right through life. It's so important for um, your adulthood success or otherwise. And then we'll talk about how and where it's developed. Yeah. So self-control is really thought about as the ability to alter your response, to resist the urge to act on an impulse. So being able to control that, to inhibit that, enables us then to stay on target for medium and long-term goals rather than just the thing here and now. And so one of the things that people may have heard about is this study back 50 years ago called the Marshmallow Test. (laughs) I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's... I ate the marshmallow and I pinched the other kids' marshmallows. I was never going to win in that test. Anyway, carry on. So, so the classic classic setup for this is that you know the researcher comes in, you've got a small child preschooler, and they're given kind of like the choice between uh, the preference between a marshmallow and a pretzel, and then the researcher says, "Hey, look, okay, so you prefer the marshmallow. Here's the marshmallow. I'm going to leave the room for a while. If you're able to not eat the marshmallow by the time I, before I come back." then that's fine, you'll get the marshmallow. If you think you're not going to be able to manage it, then ring this bell and I'll come in. But if I have to come in, then you get the pretzel, which is not your first preference, right? And there's lots of variations that have been done on this. And it seems to be, when this research was done, is that they measured how well people were able to deny themselves the marshmallow. And that seemed to be a predictor of academic achievement and all sorts of other different social outcomes. But now the marshmallow test has fallen foul of something that's been happening over the last sort of decade as re-examining a lot of these things that we took as givens in psychological science and rerunning them and finding that actually we can't replicate these findings and really digging into why is it we're not able to do that. And if you look back 50 years ago, what they weren't doing was controlling for things like, you know, what kind of families did these people come from? How much wealth did they have? What was the cognitive ability of these children? What kind of neighborhoods did they come from? And how might all of that impact upon people's ability in the moment to be able to delay their gratification? And what they found was that once you start taking that into account, there's another study that's been done, which has been done on about 900 kids. The original studies were done on fewer than 100 kids all the time is that actually these big variables like the family that you come from, the background that you come from, once you take those into account, this effect seems to disappear. And that's what's been found in this new study by the Growing Up in New Zealand study too. Is it as simple as if I have a marshmallow every day, I might be able to resist, but if I've never seen a marshmallow in my life and I'm hungry and I haven't had breakfast this morning, is it as simple as that? Is that what you mean by the variables being relevant or is that too simple? It's a little bit more complex than that, mm. um, in that, yeah, there's a, there's a need. You know, if this kid's hungry mm. and you're putting food in front of them and it's a really tasty treat, then, yeah, they may do that. Um, but it seems to be more complex than that. What the Growing Up in New Zealand study found, and this is, you know, a big study, about 5,500 kids at each of the three time points that they measured, what they seem to find is that actually kids are quite good 
uh, self-control. 60% of kids had good levels of self-control the whole way through each time point. Only 1% of kids had real difficulties with this at each of the three time points. But what it seemed to be associated with were things like how well were parents able to do things like tell stories to their kids or read books to their kids? And how well were these families in terms of their their background, in terms of their socioeconomic status, was their work, were, were they able to have enough money to put food on the table, but also the neighbourhoods that they came from too. You know, were they wealthy or, or deprived neighbourhoods? So it looks like that kind of, the stuff that you're talking about in terms of, you know, are these kids used to having treats around? Is there money enough around for them to kind of delay that gratification? That's one part of it. But there's the other part of, how do they learn emotional regulation? Right. I'm curious that you said very few at all three time points had issues with this. That means we can change because it's another thing that's left over from the study. I just did it. I'm always going to eat the marshmallow, right? But what this says is it's not a fixed trait. If, if, if at different time points kids were having or displaying different behaviours around this, that that in itself is interesting. It is, absolutely. So this kind of calls upon what's called the executive functioning part of the brain, which is your frontal cortex. And what we know and what we're finding more and more about is that actually that isn't fully developed until we're sort of in our mid-20s. You know, what we call adulthood, our brain is still maturing. And so these are preschoolers. And so all of this stuff is still in train. It's still developing. And one of the other things that we know is that actually we can have good days and bad days. And within a day, we can have times where we're really, really good at it. Or it might be four o'clock in the afternoon and somebody puts a cookie in front of you and you're going to take it when it's four o'clock in the the afternoon. That's the other thing. Is all delayed gratification the same? I'm always going to be a sucker for the marshmallow. If I am having a a hangry moment, uh, that's not a good thing for me. But I can delay gratification on any number of other things. Do we oversimplify it? I think With a test involving marshmallows or anything similar. Yeah. So what I think we're discovering now is that it tends to wax and wane even during a day. So Mm. it's not something like um, intelligence that might be fixed, but it's more almost like your energy. When your energy levels are down, you're more susceptible. That would be true of any of us, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And so what we're thinking now is this idea of self-control is something that fluctuates. It waxes and wanes. But we may have a baseline propensity for being able to maintain, depending upon how we control our environments also. Here's another thing. Is it the same to have, um, a, a, you know, to, to want to go straight to the cookie or straight to, to any kind of um, um, pleasure? Uh, is that different from self-control when you're having a red rag moment and you're able to stop yourself from responding? Are we different in different sort of circumstances? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And so when we're trying to inhibit ourselves from doing bad things or stop ourselves from indulging in pleasures that we know are probably not that great for us, but if you know it's a weak moment and we might do it. And I guess that that's the, the issue around how do we study self-control, uh, taking into account those complexities. What we know is that actually too much self-control might not be that great for us because lots of self-control tends to produce a lot of rigidity. It tends to perhaps reduce the amount of time we spend in a playful state of mind. Creativity, spontaneity. Yeah, and it does seem to be there's a relationship there with high levels of self-control can reduce those aspects of our lives. And I guess that's the relationship then between impulsiveness and compulsivity. You know, often 
high levels of self-control can also be associated with perfectionism, you know, holding ourselves mm. to really, really high standards and then being really upset with ourselves or with our children when they or we ourselves can't keep ourselves so to those standards. The self-control should serve a purpose. And, and, and the question is whether, whether you have the ability to draw on it in appropriate times and appropriate ways. Tell us a little bit more about the specifics of the study mm. and its findings. Yeah. So what they found was that, like I said, 60% of children seem to be pretty good at it. Maybe about 40%, just under 40%, showed lower levels of self-control at some points in time, in those, in those three points uh, of time. And then, then you've got this 1% of children that find it really difficult. Boys seem to be um, particularly, have particular problems. They, they had a high proportion of boys in terms of those who had less self-control. But interestingly, they also found that children who had mothers who had postnatal depression were also uh, seemed to have lower levels of self-control. And this seems to then also speak to this idea that the researchers sort of came to at the end is that it seems to be a balance between having a structured enough environment such that you learn that there are certain things that you can do and certain things that you can't do at particular times of the day or where, where there's a routine, but also having a warm and caring and empathetic enough relationship with your parents such that they can kind of coach you through when that feels difficult for you and the emotions feel like they're going to get on top of you and you're not able to control them. Actually, having a relationship that's enough and warm enough and engaged enough for you to get through that. And this is where I think the telling stories and reading books, being associated with children who have better levels of self-control, what that seems to me to be about and what the researchers also think to, seem to think is that's about having a good parent-child relationship that has a universal impact. And self-control is just one facet of the child behaviours that are going to be useful for them later on in life and as they go through childhood. What were some of the other key um, takeouts from this, especially around screen time? We've got a question here, mm. a couple of questions, but one to do with screens. Your instinct is if you've got um, you know, really good self-control around screen time, you're probably flying as a kid today. That's the marshmallow of 2020 is the, is the damn yes. device, right? What did it find around this? Yeah, so it seemed to be that those kids that um, did not so well with self-control had fewer rules from their parents around screen time. And they, the parents seemed to have a more permissive parenting style. So kind of, I guess one way you could characterize that is like anything kind of goes. If that's what you want to do right now, then that's fine to a certain extent. But what seemed to be more helpful was where parents not only had rules around screen time, but were also able to implement them. They followed through on them also. That seemed to be associated with better screen, uh, better self-control. See, that is interesting. I think it might be, like I said, a proxy around having that structure, but then also being able to coach kids through the tantrum that they might have around not being able to get what they want. The rules is interesting because as you mature, you want to begin to supply those rules for yourself. And uh, it's funny, we, we talk a lot about, sometimes the rule itself can, um, the instinct is to push back about it, right? You know, sometimes the rule itself can be the thing that you that you impulsively respond to with, with disobedience. But how do you do rules well in a way that develops self-control so that you are beginning to introduce this idea that some but not that much 
uh, yes but not now, the delay gratification thing, what's the connection between rulemaking and beginning to train a child and what they'll hopefully one day do for themselves? Yeah, I think one of the things is to understand the difference between authoritarian kind of parenting styles, permissive parenting styles, and authoritative parenting styles. Now, authoritative parenting styles is the kind of the middle way. It's the understanding that rules are good, but sometimes they're just not going to work in that particular context or situation I'll find myself in. So let's imagine you've got a preschooler and in the morning they've had a good sleep, everything's going well, you're able to implement the rules and they're able to follow them. They're able to kind of delay, okay, mummy says do this, dad says do this, and you can do this after you've done this other thing and they're able to comply with that. Fast forward to three o'clock in the afternoon, they've missed their afternoon nap, they're hungry, they're not eating the stuff that they want to, and suddenly they just don't have that personal capacity. It's waned, that level of self-control that they have. This is not a good time for them. So rigidly enforcing the rules at that point, even though you have rules and what you want to try and do is implement them, probably isn't going to get the best out of your child and then leads to possibly a series of interactions then escalates into that child being really, really unhappy and you being really unhappy too. Short hand, shortcut, short story, pick your moments. Having a structure over a week and taking the long view and playing the long game is better than trying to really enforce and rigidly control moment-to-moment interactions as they happen. So just as it's difficult for children, also parents can exert a little bit of self-control around where am I trying to get to here? Question, is it realistic for children to be able to resist the entertainment element of electronic devices they're required to have for school, particularly Apple devices such as iPads, which seem to be highly distracting and addictive? My boys are at college, at a college which uh, starts and requires an iPad from year seven. It's been a slippery slope to them using them for entertainment made worse by lockdown. It's a really, really good point. And I think the reality of the situation is that it's going to happen. And so all you can do then is place limits around when and how often is that going to happen and what, how is that used and how does that work over a weekly time scale? So, yeah, you can have a little per day, but you can't do it until after you've done certain tasks on the computer, which you've been asked to do. So recognising the reality, but then also putting some structure around that too. It's almost like we we need to, I mean, this is what it is really, we need to learn to manage our addictions somehow and our habits somehow. And habits have a very powerful positive force in life and they also have a, they can be detrimental. Um, but it's a question of being able to build over time, build boundaries in those kind of trade-offs that you're talking about. Yes, but after. Yes, but for this long. Um, and do you need to be organised about it and and quite kind of methodical about it at various stages of your child's development. Absolutely you do. Um, And I think one of the ways I think about it sometimes is really thinking about going against the grain and going with the grain. And so as the child grows, as you grow yourself as an adult, you will have new growth. And sometimes you'll be going, you'll see as you cut into yourself, as you know yourself, as you develop that self-knowledge, that sometimes when you go against the grain, you're going to get splinters. It's not going to be neat. It's not going to be tidy. Whereas actually if you can work with the grain and then gently cut across it from that point, of view then with that self-knowledge of knowing where your grain is at and how it runs then you can start to shape your behavior rather than drastically trying to do something else different instead
said. So I think at the fundamental point of all of this, and, and something that I think touches back to what the study says, is those parent-child interactions helps the child to get to know what the structure is, what the system is, and know themselves and their own reactions. And they've got a coach as well through the parent that's helping them with that self-knowledge. Do boys have more problems with self-control and does formal schooling help or hinder is another question. Yes, I think we we did say for boys they're more likely to have lower levels of self-control from yeah, the study. Yeah, it's true. And it's kind of chicken and egg. I'm sure that there are biological reasons as to why boys are boys and do boy, boy sorts of things. Um, but... Um, it also provokes a particular reaction in, ter- in terms of the parent and the expectation of what boys are going to be look like and what boys' behaviour looks like. So you might be more willing to kind of like give boys a bit of leeway for rough and tumble play, which perhaps might indicate a bit of a lack of self-control and hyperactivity than you might be with a girl if you're coming from a very traditional kind of gender stereotype background. So I think we need to be a little bit careful about that in terms of thinking about, well, where does this behaviour come from? Because I think it's transactional. I think it's a, it's an interaction between parental expectations and what the behaviour is that emerges from that child, regardless of their gender or sex. It is interesting, the takeout that most kids did okay. Yes. Right across the spectrum. And does that surprise us? Do we, again, have we been thinking in absolutes? You know, and if you've got this problem, you're bound to have that problem. Or if you have this background, you're bound to have this issue. Actually, most kids did okay. Yeah, and I think that that's reflected in some of the recommendations that comes out of the study as well. They don't recommend targeted kind of... um, interventions around developing self-control for children what they think is something actually a lot more universal in terms of assisting parents with skills around well how do you improve that kind of parent-child interaction to just kind of like lift lift all boats and making sure that all children have improved levels of self-control self-emotional regulation and self-knowledge i think it is really heartening to know that this is actually quite a good level of development that we're seeing in New Zealand children. But there are some areas for concern, such as thinking about neighbourhoods that have deprivation. What we know is that, you know, so long as children have got one friend that they can talk to, that they can confide in, that's a peer, and they've got also a parent or an adult that they can confide in and talk to. Sometimes if that parent is not available, then they may need to look into the wider family, wider whanau, and the neighbourhood too. So coming from a neighbourhood where there is that social capital that people can draw upon that support. That becomes really important too. The reading is interesting, isn't it? But one wonders if whether that is, um, you know, basically about the, the connection and being able to have that time together. And again, if you're time poor, that's more challenging, right? Um, but it's a particularly strong indicator, isn't it? It's it's an interesting one. It is. And I think maybe once people dig into this a little bit more, screen time might not necessarily be wholly negative either. Because I mm. think the more we look at screen time is actually when you've got parental guidance or parental interaction alongside a screen, it's all about the parent-child it's interaction. It's the interaction stuff, yeah, yeah. Not being off in your own little worlds. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Saab. Really interesting stuff as always. Thanks very much, Saab. Joe Hull.